we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I hope everybody enjoyed their long Labor Day weekend. And as I uh, speculated when I recorded my podcast on Friday, I thought the weakness that we saw into the close uh, did not bode well for today in the stock market. And that inclination turned out to be correct. We had another bad day in stocks, if you're long. The Dow Jones was down 632 points. That's about two and a quarter percent. The S&P 500, a little bit worse, down just over 95 points. That was a drop of 2.78%. But the real carnage was in the NASDAQ, that index down just over 4% on the day, 4.11, 465 points. That brings its three-day decline, Thursday, Friday, and now Tuesday, to over 10%. So we have a full-blown correction in the NASDAQ, which Wall Street likes to define as a move of 10% or more. We've had that in just three days. You know, I remember when I first got into the investment business, it was T plus three, meaning that trades took three days to settle. So in the time that it takes a trade to settle, we've already moved into a full correction in the NASDAQ. In fact, I mentioned on Friday's podcast that I thought we could have a potential outside reversal month for the month of September. An outside reversal month is where you take out the previous month's high and also take out the previous month's low and then you close below the previous month's low. Well, if the month of September ended today, we would have already completed that pattern. But of course, we have a lot of days left in the month of September. But as I said on Friday, I had a pretty good feeling that we would take out the August low this week, and we already took it out on Tuesday. We didn't take it out um, on Friday. And in fact, we didn't have a full-blown reversal week last week because we didn't close below the previous week's low. Uh, But today, we are below the previous month's low, but the month hasn't closed yet because we still have a long month left to go in September. And again, as I've been stating, September historically is the weakest month 
for stocks, although I think I heard a statistics today that said during election years that maybe October is actually weaker than September. Well, this is an election year, so who knows? We could have a weak September and a weak October. The uh, stocks that were leading the carnage in the NASDAQ were, of course, the uh, the stay-at-home stocks, right? The COVID stocks. Uh, these are the tech stocks that are benefiting from the fact that so many people are stuck at home, are working from home. And, and these are the darlings that everybody has been hiding out in. Remember, I warned that these lifeboats were getting very crowded as everybody was abandoning the sinking ship of, you know, the brick and mortar companies, right? The real companies with real earnings. A lot of people had to get out of those. The companies that were more associated with Main Street, even though they're publicly traded on Wall Street. But the breadth of the market was getting narrower and narrower as everybody was piling into a handful of stocks that were continuing to go up until all of a sudden the bubble pops. You know, one of the big stocks that was popular with the speculative money was Tesla, and uh, and it still is, obviously. Tesla, not a stay-at-home stock. It's just a cult stock that kind of got lumped in with the stay-at-home stocks, but it really became, I think, the poster boy for the craziness that was going on. In fact, last week, I highlighted the fact uh, that Tesla was already so much larger in market cap than, I forget how many, eight or 10 other major automobile companies combined. And I mentioned that if Tesla were to double again, it would be worth more than all of the other automobile companies in the world combined, which I said is clearly impossible. It can't happen. And at some point, the bubble was going to have to pop. And there's no way to know exactly when. And it may have just done that. I mean, Tesla was down better than 20% today, right? The stock closed just over 330 Now, last week, the stock was trading at over 500. In fact, in the pre-market, before Tesla announced their at-the-market stock sale, and I have no idea how many shares, if any, Tesla has already sold from that $5 billion, uh, but that turned the market. But if you were one of the unfortunate few who bought in the pre-market, you could have bought Tesla more than $200 above the current price. That's about a 40% decline in less than a week, which shows you how dangerous it is uh, to be investing in uh, in Tesla. Although uh, the word investment and Tesla should not be used in the same sentence, right? Because anybody buying Tesla is not making an investment. What they are making is a speculation. Now, maybe they'll speculate successfully, But you really can't call it an investment because there are so many things that have to go right with Tesla, right, in order to justify the current valuation. In fact, I think that people who have been buying Tesla need more things to go right than can go right. I don't think there's enough things that could possibly go right that could ever justify the current share price for Tesla, let alone some higher price in the future. But that's the speculation people are making. They're betting that a bunch of things are going to happen in the future that haven't already happened, and that if these things happen, well, then maybe the price of Tesla is actually worth what you're paying for it. But if you're doing that, if you're investing with all these ifs, right, then it's not really an investment. An investment should be more certain uh, of, you know, some cash flows or some income. You would have to have some metrics that you can evaluate. Uh, to decide, yes, this is a decent investment based on these fundamentals. When you buy Tesla, you have to ignore all the fundamentals. You have to toss the fundamentals aside. So if you're not using any fundamentals, well, then you're not really making an investment. You know, what's much better, instead of finding a stock that's priced for perfection and hope what actually happens exceeds perfection, when you make an investment, you try to find stocks where people think a lot of stuff is going to go wrong, right? where a lot of bad news is already priced into the stock. And then you can buy it and you could benefit if maybe all the bad things that everybody expects to happen, maybe they don't all happen. Maybe only some of the bad things happen or maybe none of the bad things happen, right? And then you make a lot of money because the, the stock is priced 
for a bunch of bad things to happen, and they may not. But even if they do, you bought the stock with that already discounted into the price. And in the meantime, if the fundamentals are good and the stock is cheap, you can get paid a dividend. You can collect money. You could be paid on your investment while you're waiting for the situation to improve and the share price to go up. See, that's really what makes stocks investments is that companies pay dividends to their shareholders who are taking a risk, right? When you take a risk, you should be paid for that risk. Just like if you're a landlord and you have a piece of property and you own it and you take a risk, right? Well, you rent it out and you don't let your tenants stay there for free. You charge them a rent and that provides you with a return. See, if you just buy raw land, that's more of a speculation. You're just betting that maybe you'll be able to do something with that land in the future. Maybe the price will go up and you can sell it at a profit, but you don't know that's going to happen. You're just betting that that's going to happen. So if you buy raw land, you know, you're making a speculative bet on the future value of that raw land. But when you buy income producing property and you can analyze the cash flow on that property, the rents that you collect relative to what it costs you to own and maintain that property, and you like the return on the money you've invested, and it's commensurate with the risk that you're taking, well, that's an investment. And that's very different. Same thing, you know, when you buy a bond, what you're really doing is loaning money to somebody. You're making a loan. They're paying you interest, right? The interest reflects not only the opportunity cost of the money, but the fact that they may default. They won't pay you back. And so if you make a bunch of loans, you have to collect enough interest for the ones that pay you back to cover the times when you don't get paid back. Either you get paid back part of what you loaned or maybe you get paid back nothing, right? But you know, you're getting interest on your uh, loan, on your investment in that loan. Well, stocks pay dividends. Now, of course, when stocks don't pay dividends, well, then you're just speculating, right? Because you're not getting any current income you're speculating that maybe the stocks will pay income in the future. But in the meantime, uh, you're hoping or you're betting that the fundamentals of the business improve, uh, the earnings go up or all these different things happen. But it really takes it out of the realm of an investment and puts it more into the realm of speculation. But of course, if a company at least has earnings, maybe that's a valid speculation that you could say that one day in the future when earnings kind of peak and they stop investing for growth, they can then start to pay out those earnings and in the form of dividends. But what a lot of people have been doing is they're buying stock in companies that have losses, right? They don't even have profits. So they're not just speculating that one day they'll be able to pay dividends on their profits. They're speculating that one day the losses will turn into profits. And that's another speculation. Like, look what happened to Slack Technologies. They came out with earnings, although not really earnings, that's not the correct word, losses. Uh, But they came out with that number after the close. And, you know, Slack is, you know, maybe like another stay-at-home type of stock. I mean, it's a messaging app. Obviously, you're going to send more messages to people when you're working from home than when you're working in the same office and you can physically communicate. But I don't think it really got caught up in a lot of the hype because if you look at the chart, it wasn't a high flyer for the past uh, couple of months, but it's certainly getting clobbered today. It's down about 18% after hours, even though the numbers that it released were actually better than what uh, had been expected. But here's the craziness of these numbers and their revenue did jump about 50% quarter on quarter. I think uh, even though it exceeded estimates, maybe investors are thinking, but wait a minute, why isn't it growing even faster given the fact that now we have COVID? uh, Maybe there are some people who expected the good news to be even better. And so when the the beat wasn't uh, big enough, uh, that might've been another catalyst. But personally, I think it doesn't even matter what these guys released. I think the good news is being sold. I think investors, speculators are looking to get out of these stocks. And in fact, let's just look at these numbers, how ridiculous it is. So they had a quarterly uh, loss. This is a real number because I think if they back out some charges, they maybe broke even. But if you just look at the raw numbers, they lost 13 cents a share, uh, which is 74.8 million on the quarter. 
That's a lot of money to lose in one quarter, except it's a lot less than how much they lost in the same quarter a year ago, where they lost 98 cents or $359.6 million a messaging app. How do you lose almost $360 million in a quarter? And if you look at their revenue, the revenue, which was just up this prior quarter, uh, ending June 31st, their revenue was $215.9 million. I mean, that's all their revenue. That means a year ago, they actually lost a lot more than their current revenue. So imagine how much they lost relative to their revenue back then. In fact, this most recent quarter, they're losing, what, $75 million approximately on $215 million of revenue? I mean, that's a huge percentage of your revenue that you turned into a loss. So look, obviously, nobody is investing uh, who is buying Slack. I mean, you're gambling on so many things going right in the future, uh, and they may not happen. You know, as I said, buy stocks where a lot of people think a lot of bad things are going to happen in the future. So maybe if all those bad things don't happen, well, the stock price could go up. And in the meantime, you can collect a lot of dividends. But, you know, the problem here is the air can easily be coming out of this stock market bubble. We're down 10% on the NASDAQ in three days, three trading days. How do you know it won't be down another 10% in the next three trading days? You don't, right? Now, it could come back. Yeah, of course, the stock market could come back. I mean, I'm not short the U.S. stock market. And there's one reason that I'm not short the U.S. stock market, and that's the Fed, right? The Fed has got the markets back. The Fed is the market's friend. In fact, the Fed is the market's only friend. The Fed is the only thing the market's got going for it. Now, of course, there's a lot of people that don't realize this, but that's the truth. If it wasn't for the Fed, yeah, I would be shorting the market. In fact, if it wasn't for the Fed, I wouldn't be shorting the market because the market would be too low to short. The market would not be anywhere near its current level but for the Fed. Now, the question is, will the Fed be able to prop the market up higher? Now, as I said in my last podcast, they came out, one of the Fed governors came out during the sell-off on Friday and talked about additional quantitative easing. Now, I didn't hear any of the Fed heads coming out today uh, throwing another lifeline to the stock market. Maybe they were looking for it. But the problem is the lifeline had no effect when they cast it out on, on Friday. So, you know, there is a lot of risk in this market because you're just betting on the Fed saving you. Now, that has been a smart bet because it's worked in the past. But as they like to say in the investment world, Past performance is no indication of future success. And by the way, markets can drop significantly before the Fed actually can work its magic. Think back to what happened in March. Remember how far the markets dropped before they bottomed? So the same thing could happen again. Now, sure, if you just hold on throughout the whole ride and the Fed bails you out, well, there's no problem. Although, There is a problem for people who are utilizing margin. There are a lot of traders out there who are buying these stocks on margin because they think stocks only go up. And then when they go down and they get a margin call, even if the stocks come back, they may no longer own them when they do. Because if you don't have the money to meet your call, your broker sells your stocks. And I have a feeling that even if the Fed does manage to resurrect the market, it's not going to resurrect all the traders who died because they had a margin call they couldn't meet. Of course, one of the only things worse than not meeting a margin call is meeting the margin call. Because what happens if you send more money into your account and then you get another margin call, right? Because the margin call, when you get your first margin call, that's a pretty good indication that you've made a mistake, right? Because you've already lost more money than you were intending to lose, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't have a margin call, right? Nobody puts on a position in their account expecting to have a margin call, right? No, you mean you have a certain amount of money in your account and you assume that you're going to be covered. So one of the first rules of margin calls is when you get one, don't meet it 
because then you have to send in more money and now you have unlimited losses as you keep having to send more and more money in until you finally can't meet the call because you're completely wiped out and then you end up losing a lot more money than you had intended to lose. But yeah, a lot of people get lulled into a false sense of security because maybe uh, they've had declines uh, in the past where the Fed has been able to bail them out. Well, yes, it works until it doesn't. You know, that's why I have been, uh, you know, teasing a little bit Dave Portnoy, you know, on my Twitter account because he's really become the poster boy for the day traders and leading his merry men on Robin Hood with the idea that stocks, you know, only go up. And if they ever go down, well, it's a freebie, right? Just buy it and you're guaranteed to make money. And the, the problem with that approach is that uh, Portnoy is only in the stock market because he couldn't gamble on sports because COVID kind of put a dent in sports betting. And so in March, April, he decided to move to a different casino uh, called the stock market. And of course, all he saw was a hot table, right? He, he wasn't there for the big collapse, but he was there for the rebound. Uh, so he's at this table and everybody's throwing numbers and he thinks that you can't lose, right? He hasn't seen a seven. Well, now somebody just threw one. And now they're throwing craps. And, you know, he still thinks it's the same game. And is it possible, again, that he will be bailed out? I mean, I was watching him today. He bought more into the close. We had a very, very weak close. I don't think this guy's got any stops. I don't think he sees any reason for it. He probably thinks stops are for sissies. And, and so he doesn't have one. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are following his advice. And I think he's on margin from what I can tell. Also, you know, another thing that Dave Portnoy didn't really understand about Tesla is he mentioned this on Twitter. He said that he didn't understand why getting snubbed by the S&P, why not being included in the S&P 500, why that was bad uh, for Tesla. Of course, I went into exactly why it was bad on my podcast on Friday. It would have been great if he would have listened to it. I suggested that. But I explained on that podcast that the reason it was such a problem is because so many people had already bought Tesla on the anticipation that it would go into the S&P. And once it gets into the S&P, now you have all these index funds that are forced to buy it from the people who front ran the inclusion. So it was a buy the rumor, sell the fact only there was no fact. There was just a rumor. And now they have to sell when it turns out that there is no fact and the rumor was false. But again, this is what happens when people who are not very experienced in trading start trading and they think they're a genius because they're making money and they don't realize that they're making money because of the Fed. You know, there is an old saying in a bull market that you don't want to confuse brains with a bull market. Well, that's even more important in a bubble. Don't confuse brains with a bubble. I mean, the smartest move I saw Portnoy make was how quickly he, he cut his losses on Bitcoin and some other cryptos. I think he bought Chainlink. He got in near the top or, you know, kind of close. It went a little higher and then it went against him quickly and he got out. And I congratulated him on Twitter for that. In fact, he really got pushed into it by the Winklevi twins. Uh, these guys uh, made a visit to his house. And, you know, he even visited Donald Trump recently. He went to the White House and got to interview Donald Trump again, which is more of these classic warning signs when the number one uh, day trader for uh, the retail crowd is uh, shaking hands with the president in the Oval Office. That's a pretty good sign uh, that uh, we're at a top here. But the Winklevoss uh, came over to his house and they really, you know, pushed him into uh, Bitcoin. And I think, you know, he kind of uh, indicated that he got it because he kind of saw it more of as a, as a pump and dump. And he thought that after he got in, that might help pump it up and he could dump it higher. But what he realized was that he was getting dumped, that he was helping other people dump. And he, and he didn't want any part of it. So he got out of it before they can dump it even more. And in fact, you know, Bitcoin is trading, as I'm talking, it's just below 10,000. It's been trading above and below it pretty much all weekend. So we haven't made any significant, uh, 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 you know, a carnage to the downside beyond that. But if you remember when I mentioned Bitcoin, because Bitcoin had a big drop uh, last week. Remember, Bitcoin, just like the NASDAQ, 
the Bitcoin was up at 12,000 and here it is now below 10,000. So it's had a bigger drop than the NASDAQ. Again, for anybody who thinks Bitcoin is a safe haven, Bitcoin is down more than the NASDAQ. So think about that. That's a lot of risk. And if you look at the recent uh, trading correlations, Bitcoin is far more positively correlated with the NASDAQ than it is to gold. Gold was down slightly today, uh, but barely. And many of the gold stocks actually finished positive on the day, even as Bitcoin was down. But, you know, a lot of people who are, again, inexperienced, novice people are in Bitcoin and now they think, oh, there's a $10,000 support. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mentioned on Friday that the support really was about 10500 and it broke. And I mentioned the fact that the breaking of that number and the fact that Bitcoin spent so much time below 10500 and in fact, it was at 10600 when I recorded my last podcast, but the fact that it had spent so much time below what I regarded as support to me meant that it was no longer support. And I thought the next support line was around 10,000. And that's where we are. But that is not strong support. I don't look at that as being strong support at all. In fact, generally, the more times a support area is tested, the weaker it gets, right? Every time you go down to support, it weakens, just like resistance. The more you bang up against resistance, the weaker that resistance gets. Remember, that was what was happening with gold. When gold kept hitting its resistance, I kept saying that we're going to break through the top because each time we get up there, the resistance gets weaker and weaker, and we take out more and more of the sellers until eventually there are no sellers left. Well, there are a lot of people who have been buying uh, Bitcoin at around 10000 or just below because they think it's the support. But eventually, we're going to run out of people who think 10000 is support. And in fact, markets rarely give you an opportunity to buy the bottom. So if 10000 was the bottom in Bitcoin, so many people wouldn't be getting so much of an opportunity to buy at 10000 The reason that so many of you get to buy Bitcoin at 10000 is because it's going a lot lower than 10000 If it wasn't going to go a lot lower, it wouldn't be so easy to buy. The fact that there's so much available to sell and the fact that it's been down here for so long, giving everyone and his brother an opportunity to buy what they think is the bottom, that's how you know this isn't the bottom. In fact, as a joke, you know, I, I, I put out a poll on, on Twitter. And if you didn't vote in the poll, I mean, you're one of the few. I actually ended up with better than 80,000 people who voted in my Twitter poll. And it was because my son, Spencer, who just recently turned 18, ended up buying some more Bitcoin. I mean, look, I think it was like 400 bucks more. I mean, it's not like he's putting, you know, a lot of money, but he's buying it. And, you know, I told him not to waste his money. Don't buy any Bitcoin. But, you know, he, you know, what does he know? He's 18 years old, right? He's making a foolish mistake, which, you know, 18 is when you want to make your foolish mistakes. Get, you know, get them out of the way when you're young, because now you have a long time to learn from your mistakes. And if you make mistakes when you don't have a lot of money, well, then you don't lose a lot of money. So fine, you want to learn a lesson, you know, buy some Bitcoin. But then I decided to tweet about it in a poll because I was like, hey, this is like Schiff versus Schiff, uh, old seasoned uh, 57 year old Schiff who's been in a professional investment business his entire uh, adult life, better than 30 years. I'm a business owner, right? I've seen the bull markets, the bear markets, the bubbles. I've been burned many times in the past. I've made a lot of money on good trades. I've blown a lot of money on bad trades. So I've got some experience. And then I've got my 18-year-old son who has no experience. I mean, he has a little bit of investment experience because he bought some gold and silver mining stocks and he's making money on those. He did trade in and out of Bitcoin at one point a few years ago, made some money on that. Uh, he had been out of the Bitcoin market for some time. But, you know, I mean, he's only 18, just got out of high school, freshman in college. How much experience can you have at that age? Never had a job, which is unfortunate in this day and age, because when I was 18, I had had many jobs, you know, and that was true with a lot of my friends. By the time I was 18, I mean, I delivered groceries. I delivered pizza. I worked in in, in a shoe store, I sold cable TV subscriptions. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. But, you know, kids today, they're not out working like, like they were when I was young or like my dad was young. I think that's unfortunate. 
uh, that kids, you know, don't have jobs the way they used to. But hey, you know, blame the government for that. Blame uh, occupational licensing, minimum wage, all the other barriers to entry uh, that make it harder for uh, teenagers to to really get jobs. But the point is, hey, he's an 18-year-old kid, never had a job. You know, whose advice do you want to take, right? Because my 18-year-old son says, buy Bitcoin, and I say, don't buy Bitcoin. It's a bubble. You know, it's a pyramid scheme. Buy gold and silver, right? You know, I mentioned... The Winklevoss, you know, they wrote an excellent piece that came out uh, uh, on Twitter about, you know, what's wrong with the fiat monetary system, why the dollar is going to crash. And just about everything I agree with. I mean, it wasn't 100 percent. I mean, it wasn't exactly like I wrote it myself, but it was good enough. I mean, you know, it's much better than you would get uh, from uh, a, a mainstream Wall Street firm. I mean, you know, so they have the exact rationale correct as to why the dollar is doomed and why it's going to lose a lot of value. But then they come out to trash gold and they say that you got to buy Bitcoin uh, as a way to save yourself. And of course, the way they trash gold is they say that there's too much of it because they say, look, they're going to mine gold from seawater. They're going to mine gold from space and asteroids. And so the supply is going to be too high, which is all a bunch of nonsense. I mean, I do believe that at some point, in the future, in the distant future, they'll probably be mining uh, some gold in space. Most, if not all of that gold will likely remain in space to be used in space on space stations or spaceships or whatever. Uh, and maybe we will find a way to get gold out of seawater. But all this is way in the future. It's very expensive. And when we finally can do it, it's only because we've run out of all the gold uh, that we can easily get out of the ground. That's why we're looking in this in the ocean or looking in outer space. And what makes people think that the supply of gold, once we start mining it in the oceans, is going to grow at an even faster rate than it's been growing when we're mining it from the earth? Because we've been mining gold for hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, that's been happening. It's not like we haven't had mining. And in fact, in reality, the amount of mining that we've had in the last decade has actually been pretty low. And what's even lower than how much we've mined is what we've explored, the exploration. Right? Companies have not been investing in trying to replace their reserves. So I think the supply of gold is going to be very well constrained over the next decade. Uh, and so to say that people shouldn't buy gold because there's just going to be an abundance of it is pure nonsense. But where they really get it wrong is when they then argue about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is, is so much better than gold and why it's better money than gold. And it's not even close. But in any event, I did the poll and my suggestion was, OK, you know, whose advice do you want to take? My advice or my 18 year old kid? And of course, when I did the poll, I knew exactly what the results were going to be. I thought it was pretty funny because there was a lot of stories online and people were saying, oh, Peter Schiff, you know, the poll's not turning out the way you thought. The poll's going to backfire. It turned out exactly the way I thought. I knew that uh, the Bitcoin community would not be able to resist the temptation to troll my poll, even though I was, in fact, trolling them by dangling out this bait to embarrass me and make me look bad. I knew my son was going to win. He actually won in the landslide. He got over 81% of about 83,000 votes on my Twitter. So the whole Bitcoin community decided that this was their opportunity to humiliate me and prove that uh, Bitcoin is better than gold because an 18-year-old is suggesting that you buy it. There's even been articles written about it, which I thought was so funny that uh, this is the reason to buy gold because uh, my 18-year-old son, what, what about my seven-year-old son? You know, I got another son, he's seven. I wonder how many people want to take his investment advice. What about the investment advice from my from my daughter? She's four. Yeah, she's got some ideas that she wants to share. I mean, who, who wants to take her advice? I mean, the point was of my tweet, even though I knew that my son was going to win, is that, yeah, he shouldn't win. The fact that everybody in the Bitcoin community is excited to follow the advice of an inexperienced 18-year-old and to ignore the advice of a far more experienced 57-year-old, right? That is part of my point, why you have a bunch of novices who don't understand how markets work, how much markets can go down. Everybody who is buying Bitcoin is speculating. Now, you could say, well, Peter, you're buying gold, right? That's speculation because you're not betting 
on uh, gold's not paying interest or a dividend, which is true, but gold is money, right? You're saving your money. So when you have dollars and you stick them in your mattress, you don't get any interest either. You got to loan the dollars out to somebody to get interest. So if you're holding gold, you're not speculating, you're just preserving the purchasing power that is inherent in that gold. There is no purchasing power inherent in Bitcoin. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, well, Bitcoin is money. No, it's not. At least it's not money now, right? It's never been used as money. Gold's been used as money in the past, and it's been used as a store of value for thousands of years, and it's held as a monetary reserve asset today by all the central banks. Uh, Bitcoin has none of those properties, and it has none of that history. Maybe you can say Bitcoin may be money in the future. I don't think it ever will be. But if you're betting that one day Bitcoin will be money, one day Bitcoin will be a store of value, you're speculating on what Bitcoin may become. When you own gold, you're not speculating on what gold might be in the future. You're just betting that gold will be in the future what it's been for thousands of years in the past, right? Things have to just stay the same. Gold has to just do what it's always done. In order for Bitcoin to work out, it's got to do what it's never done. And believe me, there's been all sorts of, uh, you know, fool's gold that have come and gone over the centuries where people thought they had the next gold and they ended up uh, being fools. But I digressed onto this whole uh, Bitcoin route when I was talking about Dave Portnoy and and his brief venture into Bitcoin. But let's go back uh, from the ridiculous to the sublime and, and, and talk about stocks and his attitude about the stock market and the stock market always going up. Look, if you are buying overpriced stocks, right, and it's it's pretty clear, right, one of his favorite stocks has been Tesla, but he has some other, uh, you know, tech darlings that that he likes. But clearly the stock is way overpriced based on what it's earning today. Nobody knows what it's going to earn in the future. That's pure speculation. But even if it earns a tremendous amount in the future, it's still overpriced. But what has been keeping this market going, unbeknownst uh, to uh, Portnoy, is the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve's ability to create inflation to prop up asset prices, to prop up the stock market. And it has succeeded in doing that, but can it continue to succeed in doing that? Now, personally, I think it can But I think the stock market could go down quite a bit more before it's willing to print enough extra money in order to do that. And now the question is about the politics of this. You know, are they willing uh, to allow the market to fall quite a bit between now and November, which would pretty much assure a Biden victory? Or do they want to really pull out the stops and print as much as they can to try to give Trump the best chance he has of reelecting, which is to kick this uh, stock market bubble can uh, down the road long enough for the November election to pass. Now, the question is, do they want to do that? And even if they wanted to do that, can they do that? Because I think they would have to increase the amount of money printing so dramatically. I don't think they could just hint about it or talk about it anymore. This market is so expensive and so ripe for a collapse that the Fed is really going to have to surprise the market by getting out in front of the expectations that already exist, right? Everybody already knows that the Fed's not raising interest rates anytime in the next several years, right? Five years, 10 years, we all know that, right? The Fed's not even thinking about, thinking about, thinking about raising interest rates. You know, if they add another thinking about, what's that going to do? Right. Oh, we're thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. No, I don't think that's going to move the markets. Talking about uh, doing more QE in the future when they're already doing so much QE in the present, that's not going to move the needle anymore. Right. The, the, The addict has such a big drug habit that the only thing that's going to work is just shock and awe on a massive uh, new uh, fix of drugs that's way beyond what even uh, anyone in the market, the most optimistic uh, crazy bulls had expected. So we need just some something really out of left field. And we might get it. But if we do, then you got to worry about the bigger bubbles. Because the stock market is a bubble. And this is the biggest stock market bubble we've ever had. That's why I titled 
my last podcast, the biggest bubble ever. But, you know, I really should have qualified it. But, you know, when you're doing these titles, you don't want to make them too long. You want it short and sweet. But it's really not the biggest bubble ever. It's the biggest stock market bubble ever. Because the stock market bubble really pales in comparison to the bubbles in the bond market and the U.S. dollar. That's the real bubble. And they're really related. And I, I mentioned this, I think, in the last podcast, but the, the bond market bubble is really part of the dollar bubble because bonds are, in effect, dollars, right? They're just dollars that pay some interest, right? And they don't pay much interest. But if you own uh, regular dollars, think of a dollar bill as like, you know, like a zero coupon uh, bond, but it's not in perpetuity, you know, because you could cash it in, right? You could you could spend it. It's you know whenever you want, but it, it doesn't pay anything. You'd have to loan it to somebody uh, to get income. But uh, it's just like it just pays no yield. Now, when you own treasuries, they're basically dollars, except you have to wait until the treasury matures to actually get your dollars. But if you want, you can sell the treasuries prior to maturity and get maybe a little bit less than the face amount, right? Because if you want to get out before maturity, if interest rates have gone up a little bit, then you're going to take a bit of a haircut and you won't get the full face value. But if you hold your treasury to maturity, you'll get the face amount that's denominated on the note or the bond, whatever it is. So they're really all dollars, right? So because if you own U.S. treasuries, you own dollars. You, you know, somebody owes you dollars, and so you are uh, a creditor who will be collecting dollars. So it's all part of your faith and your confidence in the dollar. And that is where you have the biggest bubble because people are so confident in what the dollar will buy in the future that they're willing to loan their dollars to the U.S. Treasury for 30 years for about 1.4% interest, even though the current inflation rate even the way the government measures it, is higher than 1.4%. So you're talking about a massive bubble, which again, it's not necessarily fueled by investors who are actually dumb enough to want to make these loans. It's being fueled by central banks that don't even care how dumb these loans are because they're not investing money that they actually had to work for. And it doesn't matter if the money is lost because they'll just print some more. It doesn't cost them anything. So you've got all these central banks that are perpetuating this bubble. But then you also have traders, right, who are in the bond market, who are trading for appreciation because they expect overpriced bonds to get even more overpriced as more central banks print money to buy them. And in fact, as the stock market starts to fall, the number of traders who want to make that bet increases because what's been happening traditionally is as risk assets like stocks go down, people buy what they perceive to be safe haven assets like U.S. Treasuries. The reality is U.S. Treasuries are also a risk asset. They're just a different risk. And when people figure this out, when risk assets go down, it's going to include U.S. Treasuries. Now, the interesting thing is that today, even though we were getting uh, a big drop in the stock market, the bond market was up, but not a lot. This was not a big up day in the bond market. In fact, bond yields came down a bit, but not nearly as they were up on uh, Friday. So, you know, we didn't even give back all of the gains. And yesterday, again, even as stocks were getting killed, bonds were getting killed too. And now today stocks got killed again and bonds uh, recovered some of what they had lost, but we didn't see the flight to uh, quality. So maybe that trade has already played out. And if so, that is going to be even more problematic for the stock market because the bond market has actually acted as a buffer to help cushion the stock market's fall. Because as the stock market gets killed, and as people then rush into the bond market as stocks are crashing and now bonds rally, that actually makes stocks more attractive because now on a relative basis, they look to be a better value because now interest rates are lower and that is a support 
for stock prices. Also, since bonds compete with stocks, as bonds get more more expensive and the yields go down, well, then the dividends on stocks look that much more attractive. So that has acted as a break. And so as people have rushed into bonds because the stock market is crashing, the stock investors look over to the rally of the bond market, and that is supportive of the stock market. And then they start buying back stocks. But if we start to see the bond market falling at the same time the stock market is falling, that's just going to add fuel to the fire burning in the stock market. And it's going to result in stock investors dumping their stocks even faster because that means stocks are getting more expensive as interest rates are rising. And when you look at how low interest rates are, you can only imagine how much higher they could rise. And that is the uh, predicament that the Fed is in because the only way that the Fed could keep interest rates from rising is to print more money to buy more bonds. But by doing that, they simply erode confidence even faster in the dollar. They're creating more inflation, which destroys the value of bonds, which means lenders need to demand a higher interest rate to compensate them for the loss of purchasing power due to the increased inflation that the Fed creates to try to buy those bonds and they get themselves into a self-perpetuating uh, spiral. And this is the bubble that we all have to be concerned about. It's the bubble in the dollar, both in the cash and in dollar-denominated debt, which would include U.S. Treasuries, but uh, uh, private debt, corporate debt. Now, of course, that debt is not necessarily the same thing as the U.S. dollar, because in theory, private uh, borrowers can default. If you accept the premise that the U.S. government will never default, which, of course, may not be true because it could default. I mean, the U.S. government defaulted on its promise to pay gold. I mean, think about that for a minute. If you think the U.S. government will never break a promise that it's made to a creditor, right? When people owned U.S. dollars in the 1950s and the 1960s, we told them that we will give you an ounce of gold for every 35 dollars that you have, every 35 Federal Reserve notes. We promise to pay you. It was written on the bills. We promise to pay you uh, an ounce of gold for your $35. So that was a contract. It was a solemn commitment on the part of the United States. It's the same commitment that we have now to people that hold our bonds. We promise to pay you, you know, a thousand dollars in paper, right? In Federal Reserve notes or 10,000 or a million, whatever they're holding, right? We're making a promise to pay. Well, we used to have a promise to pay gold and now we have a promise to pay dollars, but we broke the promise to pay gold. We told people, we're not going to pay. We told you we were going to pay. We're not going to do it, right? You loaned us uh, money that was redeemable in gold. Well, we ain't paying you back the same purchasing power that you loaned us. That's what we told the world. So that was a default. There's no other way that you can describe it. We reneged on a commitment to make good on the terms of, of a contract, right? Uh, of an IOU, IOU gold, right? Well, so if we defaulted then, why can't we do it now? Why can't we tell holders of U.S. Treasury bonds, we're not going to pay? In fact, Donald Trump even hinted about not paying the Chinese. He was like, look, you infected us with this COVID-19, the China flu. We might not pay you the interest we owe you or the principal we owe you on these bonds. So Trump even talked about defaulting, reneging on a commitment. So people who think that it's impossible, it's already happened. So, you know, if it can happen once, it can happen again. But if you just even accept the premise that it's unlikely that the U.S. government will default. After all, they could just print. I mean, there's a reason they didn't want to pay gold because they can't print that. But there's no limit to how many Federal Reserve notes they can crank off, right? Or they can add as many zeros as they want on, on those uh, electronic bills. So in theory, they wouldn't be forced to default. Uh, so as long as they're not going to default, then having a treasury is the same as having a dollar. You just have to wait for it to mature to get all of them. But of course, as the dollar's free fall gets higher and higher, right? If the dollar starts losing value faster, that means you're going to lose that much more if you have to wait, right? If you're stuck with a 30-year bond and you're not getting your dollars for 30 years, if you have to turn around and sell that bond to somebody else, what do you think they're going to give you if the dollar's in free fall? And they know they have to wait 30 years. I mean, who knows what, if any value, a dollar today might actually have 
if you're not going to get it for 30 years. After all, look at the coupon. The coupon on that bond is nothing. So maybe the price has to fall substantially to where they get an annual coupon of maybe 10% or 15% of 20%. But think about how low the price of a treasury would have to fall in order for the buyer to have that type of return on the investment. And think about how much you're going to lose uh, having to sell the bond at such a big discounted price. And of course, the price you're getting is still being paid in U.S. dollars. So you end up getting a huge haircut. You don't get anywhere near the face value, but the dollar itself has also gone down. Inflation has caused the price of goods and services to go up. So your bond crashes, you get back fewer dollars, but now your fewer dollars buy even less uh, because of how much value the dollar is lost. So you lose twice to inflation if you're holding a long-term governed bond. You lose much more than if you're just holding cash. You lose either way, but the biggest losses will be reserved for the people who are foolish enough uh, to own debt instruments denominated in dollars. And you know, the lower these things are yielding, the more you're likely to lose. So the biggest losses could be in the treasury market, which is why I've been telling people, get out. I mean, if I'm going to go down with a ship, I'd rather go down with the S&P 500 uh, than bonds. I mean, I think investors will lose a lot more in the bond market. People who think they're hiding out in a safe haven, they're, they're worried about the risk in the stock market, and so they're buying bonds. Again, that's like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. There's a lot of risk in bonds, uh, and you, you just do not want to go there. If you're there, get out. You need to be mitigating the risk of inflation. Uh, the Fed is promising more inflation, and that's one promise they're going to keep. They will deliver on that promise uh, in spades, and so you want to not own U.S. dollars. You want to own real assets, foreign assets, dividend-paying, foreign stocks. You want to own real money. You want to own gold. You want to own silver. And you want to move into these assets as quickly as you can. You know, we are literally living on borrowed time. And, you know, I don't know how much longer we have. Can we have years? Sure, we could. I mean, I'm surprised we've made it this many years. But you know what's been happening recently? So many alarm bells are ringing. So many warning signs are flashing that you really can't ignore it. And you really can't press your luck. And really, that's what it's been. I mean, people who have been in the dollar, in the U.S. markets for the last decade have been lucky, right? They, they just got lucky. They didn't get wiped out because they got lucky because the Fed was able to bail them out. Well, as I said earlier in the podcast, there's a limit to how much longer that's going to work because eventually they have to destroy the dollar in the process. And that's all you've got. You're investing in dollars and dollar-denominated assets. So once they destroy the dollar, it may not matter how many you have. If the dollar has no value, then what difference does it make how many units of a worthless currency that you have? And of course, even if the dollar doesn't become worthless, if it just becomes worth a whole hell of a lot less, that dramatically reduces uh your living standard, the real value of, of your assets and the income that those assets are able to generate, and then therefore your standard of living that you're able to afford uh, with the income from those assets or you know the principal that you may receive uh, when you liquidate those assets. So before this gets any worse, before the dollar bubble and the bond market bubble really goes pop, right, and the air starts gushing out, you need to uh, get your get your portfolio. Uh, set up. If you're already working with me at Europe Pacific Capital, if we've already got you invested, uh, fully invested in foreign stocks and precious metals and gold stocks, well, then you're fine. Just sit back and, you know, not enjoy the show, but at least realize that uh, you've protected yourself, you've protected your family. But if you haven't done that yet, or if you're just now finding out about my podcasts, make sure and call one of the brokers at Europe Pacific Capital and talk to us about these strategies and how they would fit into your portfolio, into your retirement accounts. If you don't have any physical gold, talk to Shift Gold. You know, again, I just got the numbers for last quarter, and we set a new record for quarterly sales at Shift Gold, and that beat the record that we set the prior quarter, which was a record, and now we beat that record. And in fact, even last quarter, Shift Gold is actually selling more gold per quarter than we used to sell per year. And we're still just scratching the surface on the demand for gold, right? The demand for gold 
is just now starting to pick up, but it's still microscopic. I mean, compared to the amount of money that is going into overpriced stocks and bonds, the tiny amount that's trickling into real money, gold and silver, this is still the beginning. I mean, it's hard to believe that $2,000 is really like the floor on gold, but that's basically where we are. I mean, we're below, you know, we're at 1900 and change. 1931 is the last price. I mean, we're still holding comfortably uh, above the old highs. You know, maybe we'll get back below 1900 again. I mean, certainly it's possible that we get into the 1800s or even 1700s. But you know what? I wouldn't want to bet on it, right? I mean, I, I would much rather bet that we go higher than lower because I think the, the risks for those people who want to bet gold's going lower and so they don't buy it, they're going to lose a lot more if it goes higher without them. Even if you buy it now at 1930 and it temporarily goes down, what have you lost? No big deal, right? How low is it going to go? You know, I know Harry Dent is now calling again for gold to go back down to 1,000. Of course, when it was 1,000, he told people not to buy it because he said it was going to go to 400. So Harry's been bearish on, on gold for a long, long time. I don't expect the price of gold to go back down to 1,000. If it goes down there, would I buy more? Absolutely. But I really don't think it's going to happen. In fact, I don't think it's going back down to 1500 Again, I think those days are gone. Look at a chart. Uh, it's pretty clear where the price is going. Look at what central banks are doing. It's pretty clear what they're doing now and what they're going to keep doing in the future. You don't have to take a wild gamble and bet on Bitcoin. When we have a tried and true alternative to fiat money, which is real money, gold and silver, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are also fiat. Their value is based on faith. In fact, I actually watched an interview with uh, Pompliano on the Rich Dad podcast with Robert Kiyosaki. And the reason I was even there is because I, I checked out the interview that I did with Robert Kiyosaki. You know, Robert and I, you know, I've been going on these real estate guys cruises with him and he and I have become friendly. He's a really great guy. He's got some real interesting stories if you ever find yourself, you know, having dinner with him. He's got some great stories from his old days. Uh, but I, I, I did his podcast. So if you haven't listened to the interview, check it out. He also got into the media because he's he also has bought some Bitcoin in along with uh, gold and silver. And I, you know, I told him I, I think he's mistaking uh, to buy buy Bitcoin. But, you know, he's you know, he's gambling on it uh, like a lot of other people have gambled on it, but mainly because he believes the dollar is toast. He believes that we're going to see a crisis in the dollar. And so he's buying whatever he thinks is a hedge. And he knows that gold and silver are at a hedge. But a lot of people have been promoting Bitcoin as a hedge. And so he's bought into some of that too. Hopefully he'll get out of it uh, before he loses too much. Although I don't think he has that much money in it. I don't know exactly how much, so I can't say. Uh, but knowing him, I would imagine it's uh, small compared to what he has in gold and silver or in other assets. But the interesting thing about that interview was Anthony Pompliano, uh, affectionately known, I guess, in the Bitcoin community as Pomp. And I think he's a nice guy as well. I don't know him as much as I know Robert or as well. Uh, but an interesting thing that, that, that Anthony said was that he said, Bitcoin's value comes from faith, which is true. That's exactly where its value comes from. It comes from faith, just like fiat currency. It has no real value. It has no real independent use. People value it because they have faith that people will always accept it in the future in exchange for goods and services. And the same thing applies to Bitcoin. The faith is that people will always want Bitcoin. Why does Anthony think people will always want Bitcoin? Because it was first. Because it was the first cryptocurrency, and therefore it's got the best brand, and it's got the most people who believe in it, the most people who have faith in it, and there's a whole infrastructure that has been built around that faith, and therefore it will continue. Well, look, it, it doesn't last forever in fiat currencies. All of these faith-based currencies end up collapsing eventually, but what keeps the faith going for extended periods of time is that government recognition, is that legal tender status, is that tradition of use, is the fact that dollars or euros or yen are used in contracts, in, 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 in insurance uh, policies, you know, for wages and all sorts of things. So there is a reason that faith can persist as long as it does. But ultimately, the faith goes, 
right? It's a confidence game. It's a con. And the government can only con the public for so long into having faith in a piece of paper. And eventually they all collapse. The same thing is going to happen to Bitcoin, except its lifespan is going to be a lot shorter because it is not legal tender. It does not have a government behind it. It is not uh, used as a medium of exchange. It's not used in contracts. It doesn't have this long history uh, of use uh, as money. No, it just has faith. I agree. It has faith. The difference is gold's value doesn't come from faith at all. Gold's value comes from the inherent properties of the metal. All of the things that you can use gold for, all the things that you can use gold for today, all of the uses that gold had in the past, and all of the unknown uses that will be discovered for gold in the future, my bet is that there's going to be more uses for gold that we don't even know about yet that will be discovered in the future as we continue to advance as a society. So it's those properties that never decay over time that you're storing when you're storing gold. So gold does not require faith in anything. Gold is not simultaneously anybody else's liability. You don't put your faith in anything It's when you don't want to trust something that you own gold because you don't have to trust gold because you have it. You don't have to trust anybody. There is a lot of faith uh, inherent in, in owning Bitcoin, and Anthony admitted that. And, and that's why you don't want to own it because anything that's based on faith, right, based on confidence, what happens when the confidence is lost? Well, the value is lost too, because the value only exists so long as the confidence exists. And the confidence is going to go. You only have 10 or 11 years of history to bet on, right? So you don't want to take a chance when you're looking at a massive uh, currency collapse, the potential of hyperinflation. You don't want to take chances and gamble on, uh, on an untested, speculative, uh, potential alternative when you have the real thing that's right there. So buy gold, buy silver, buy these dividend-paying foreign stocks. Make sure and talk to Euro-Pacific Capital. If you're foreign, Euro-Pacific Asset Management and shift gold.